Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which mean, means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. All right. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I know, uh, probably like you, my first thought whenever John does one of those kids' lessons is, I, I knew that was coming. I knew exactly that, what he was going to say, right? John, another gem. Um, all right, so uh, leading into Christmas here, and we're thinking about Joseph and the encounter with God that he has. And of course, uh, as always, it's got me thinking about Santa Claus. So we, uh, you know, we often cast Christmas as the time of the year when we get what we ask for, right? And no matter how you feel about Santa Claus, you likely still practice some kind of gift giving um, in your life, either now or at birthdays or something like that. Um, and if you're at all like uh, the Littleton family, like our family, it becomes this complex dance of trying to figure out, you know, how to discern what someone might want, right? Like, what, what does this person want? And I hear that I am the worst to buy gifts for, and here's why. Because I want lots of things, and they're very random and obscure things that I have seen on eBay and marked with a little heart. Um, and who would guess them, right? Like, who would ever uh, guess? And so then I have to tell somebody about it. And as I did to Michaela, hint that they might be offering a lower price right now. Hint, hint, right? So that sort of thing happens. So, you know, you're trying to figure out what other people want, but what did I just do? I started thinking about what I want, right? And as an owner of a retail store, I know, I know this is what happens because people walk around and they talk to me uh, and they'll say, you know, like, oh, there's all these beautiful things. Oh, it's so hard to shop for somebody else. So I don't want to think about the things that I want. And I tell them as a retail store owner, just buy both. You know, just, just that's fine. But, okay, let's get beyond the gift go giving though. And because it goes deeper, um, you may reject that whole package, right? But in our culture, uh, depression spikes over the holidays. This is something we try to kind of acknowledge um, whenever we're going into a major holiday, is that this isn't always a smooth time for people. And why, why is that? Usually because um, memories come up, right? Expectations rise, comparisons abound. We see images of happy families and the houses they're in and the, de the decor and the trips they're going on and the friends at parties together. It's in the air, right? It's everywhere. And, um, and, and you can sort of start to, to go, whew, when I look at my life, it's not, it's not quite stacking up to, uh, to what I'm seeing other people uh, get. 
And maybe, maybe the whole, you know, you reject the whole Christmas enchilada. And if, you, if you're new to the Southwest, um, that's, a, that's a reference to a real dinner you could have, a Christmas enchilada. What's that? It's, a, it's got the green and the red sauce on the enchilada. See? Now you've learned something. Um, but, but if you reject the whole thing uh, and you've decided to only focus on the, the religious aspects of things, you know, you, you might think you've transcended this and you might think you're immune, but um, don't be so sure. I speak as one who's journeyed here and, you know, I've done the thing where I've come into the various holidays. I rejected the Easter bunny. I've rejected mostly Santa Claus. I've done all the become the purist, right? Um, and, you, and you can think I'm, I'm becoming immune to some of these things that the holidays bring. Um, but the more pure you seek to be in this regard, the more kind of religious layers you, you embrace, sometimes the higher your demands upon God become. And you can end up dealing with the same problem, right? And why is that? This is, uh, it's because you're, you're journeying into the territory of, of the Pharisee when this is full-blown. The hard worker, the deep thinker, the ones with conviction. And if you're not vigilant, you begin to feel like God is indebted to you for your purity and your work. You may start to whisper deep in your heart, God, when I pray, I deserve an answer. Do you know how much I pray? Um, why don't I have the peace you've promised me? I've been trying really hard, right? Um, why don't I have the prosperous life that I see other righteous people having? I have done my part, haven't I? So look at that. You may not wait up for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve, but we have recreated God in his image. When I behave myself, you owe me. We had a deal. I believe you deliver. It's Polar Express. Our religions become the Polar Express. The bell rings for me because I believe. It's only fair. I do the work, right? But fairness is not the story of Christmas or Christianity, nor is getting what we want. Um, it's often quite the opposite, as we'll see tonight and as we've already heard from the Bible. So let's, uh, let's flash back a couple thousand years to a fairly obscure Jewish town called Nazareth. Uh, John mentioned it briefly the other day. And we find Joseph, the son of Jacob, and who is he? That, that's a great question. We don't really know too much about him. We get no biography of his life. Um, we know a few things. One thing we do know is that he was likely aware that he descended from a very pure line of Judaism. We have the um, genealogies to prove this in the Bible. Um, and I wouldn't pretend to say these are exact parallels, but I mentioned a book I read recently, which is uh, Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nyeri. And he talked about how his parents... Uh, maybe um, descending from a little more of a similar tradition, knew they were very uh, from a very pure Muslim line, that they were from the most pure kind of family line in the Muslim religion, that their people were kind of untainted and thereby were privileged. Um, and, but when you're, when you're privileged in this way, when you come from a really good family line, you have a lot to lose. And so Daniel Nairi, when he reflected on his mother's decision to become a Christian, which would mean to be an anathema to the, the people of her pure family line. Um, he 
was surprised. When he looked back, he said, she had so much to lose. She lost everything. She, she literally had to flee for her life, which is how he ended up um, being a little Iranian boy growing up in Oklahoma, which was a strange experience uh, for him. And perhaps Joseph um, felt a bit like, like this, like Daniel Nairi's mother when she was facing this experience. He, he would have been at least proud of his heritage. He was aware he descended from King David. But on the flip side, they were in Nazareth, which recent archaeology has shed some light on. Um, interestingly, I mentioned I own a retail store. It all started with a retail store in Nazareth called Cactus. Um, it's a little gift store um, themed around desert items. It felt quite similar uh, to what I experienced in my life. Um, and they were doing a renovation of this little store called Cactus and bumped into some interesting stuff underneath and found themselves a very large Roman bathhouse um, underneath their little retail store, which is what happens when you live in the Middle East. Unlike, you find some things in Tucson, but not quite like that. Um, and what, what this seems to mean as they begin to, to look into this is that Nazareth was a, a little bit different than maybe we thought. And chances are, the, the, some, there's a lot of speculation that this, this seems highly likely, that there was a large Roman garrison in Nazareth, which means that this was a military center to some degree for the Roman Empire. It means that Joseph, um, and therefore later Jesus, would have grown up amidst a bustling kind of military town, um, and that there, and, and a military that was not theirs, right? It's the occupying military, the government that ruled over them, taxed them, and demanded their allegiance. Um, th and this would not have been an overall pleasant reality. A uh, devout Jewish person, especially of Joseph's lineage, would likely resent this to some degree, at least. And they would have been aware um, that they were waiting for this to be over, that they were waiting for deliverance from this or the failure of the Roman Empire or something um, of that nature. Now, you may have heard that Joseph was a carpenter, right? And this typically conjures up images of custom furniture, right, in our day. Um, and so I was thinking about the chosen, you know, because they show Jesus being a carpenter just like his dad. And so Jesus's way of being a carpenter is to have this super dope backpack. And so we all, everybody likes it. Honestly, if I put this backpack in our store, we would sell them like no doubt. It's like a, Alex, you could make one of these with your leatherworking skills. It's just rad. It's this super cool backpack. And he's like, you know, he'll be out in the wilderness and he's like, Phew. You know, and he's like kind of working on a chair. And, um, you know, I, who am I to disagree with the chosen? I'm, I'm really nobody. Um, but I, I, anyway, point is, chances are that's not what it was to be a carpenter for Joseph and Jesus. Um, chances are their skills were being used to build uh, the Roman Empire. They were probably building military implements or, you know, pieces, uh, you know, things that were meant to be used by the Roman Empire to build uh, up what, what they were developing. We should probably think more of this image here. This is carpenters uh, in the days of Joseph um, who might be, might be building these things. And I guarantee you they were not building them to sell in boutique stores like Cactus. Um, they, were, they were building them to be used by the wealthy and the powerful. Now, it can be a beautiful thing, I know, from my past in, uh, in woodworking and stuff to build a piece of furniture for somebody who loves and appreciates it, and they, therefore they appreciate you and think of you whenever they see it. 
Uh, it's another thing entirely to build something uh, you don't believe in, right? To walk by it every day and recognize your skill having shaped something you aren't proud of at all, something that feels even kind of oppressive to you. And, and many laborers throughout the ages know the feeling. And I think many of us even know this feeling as we think about our work. I mean, you might build a digital platform for something you don't really love that much, the, the website for a company that you're just like, eh, mm, whatever. Um, or you might actually work on a weapon that you're not sure how you feel about it or prescribe something that you're not 100% sure is best or create a lesson plan that teaches something that you're not entirely pumped about all the time. I can't do that right now, Joe. Hold on, Louie. You, you and me talk later about that one. Um, sometimes you're building something you'd rather not build. Uh, if you had options, you wouldn't do it. And, and it's even worse when you don't get to choose, when you have to do this. It stands as a, as a monument, in a way, to your dehumanization. So Joseph was a carpenter, and that may have been complicated, but that wasn't all that was going on in his life, of course. So he's going to get married, right? In many ancient cultures, including theirs, uh, a man would work very hard to present themselves to the family of the woman he was going to marry. And, and often this had been kind of worked out between the parents or something like that. Usually men who were quite a bit older would marry a younger girl. And this had to do with them kind of getting their life prepared to bring in somebody who they would raise a family with. And perhaps carry on the business with. And so they would, um, we would call that an arranged marriage. Uh, back then it was just the norm. It's just kind of how it went. A man would do something like build a dwelling place. Let's see, where'd it go? Uh, it might build a dwelling place, a little something like this. This is probably quite the fancy version. Um, Joseph's in Nazareth might have been smaller than this, right? But they would have uh, assembled a payment to be made to the father um, and this still happens, by the way, throughout the world. Um, I had a, a friend in Africa, Central Africa, who um, had to purchase a large cow to give to um, the father in order to marry his wife. And uh, to us, that sounds funny, maybe, like a cow for a wife. But for them, it's, it's not at all. It's like this is an economic engine. This is um, to have this, this cattle is like is a very significant, it's a significant purchase. It's going to be... Um, a moneymaker, it, it signals something. It signals I can provide and I'm going to help provide for you uh, in return. So Joseph had found a woman whose family heritage was good like his. We know Mary's uh, family line in the scriptures. And not only is it really cool that it goes back, you know, and, and fulfills the prophecy, it's a, it's a good family. They may live in Nazareth, but they come from good stock. They're good people. They're pure Jewish people, they would have been a respectable pair. They would have been able to hold their heads up high, even if they were in a rough situation, knowing that they were from a good family, both of them. And they were betrothed, which was something uh, somewhere between our concepts of engagement and marriage. It was a binding commitment before marriage. So a family could depend on it as the details were worked out. So it wouldn't be like, um, like our engagement today uh, you know, you could break it off as you're coming down the aisle. And so many movies have engaged, you know, shown this happen, right? Where the person has the change of heart at the last second or whatever. To them, to break an engagement required a divorce because you had really promised like life and livelihood to this family. Um, and so you had to take this very, very seriously. 
Now, I think we can assume that although life wasn't all roses for them, to some degree, it's going according to plan. They're, they found each other. Joseph is building a home. He's, he's got good work. Um, he has a promising bride. He's capable, respectable in the eyes of her parents. And they were on the right track to some degree. And then comes Joseph's most profound encounter ever with God. We, we don't hear anything about his life previous to this, but I think we can assume he has the most profound encounter he's ever had with God right here. And here's, here's how Matthew tells the story decades later. Now, the birth of Jesus took, this, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now we're trying to get into Joseph's shoes here. That's what I want you to have to imagine a bit of what it's like to be him. Um, now we know that from last week, as John shared, that Mary came to him with a story, right? She had seen an angel and that angel explained the whole thing. This was a miracle baby who was gonna save the world and she hadn't been unfaithful. She was as pure as can be. And in fact, the, you know, blessed are you among women. She'd heard this kind of, good promise over her, and Joseph knew she was full of it. Yeah. Um, why do I say that? Well, because he starts planning a divorce. You don't start planning a divorce when you're like, this is, maybe this is God. He, I think he heard the story and was like, no, I think not. He probably talked to a couple of his buddies and said, what do you think of this? And they said, uh, yeah, no, she found a boyfriend is what happened. I know a few of us, this, this strikes a little chord. It does in my story, as some of you know, um, and it might in yours. You discover something, a text thread, something doesn't add up, or you feel a little distance, and you have a choice here. You can turn a blind eye to that. You can look into that. You can try to look into it and forgive and trust again. Or at so, some point, you might decide that in your case, you have to move forward, but it's going to be painful. It's a long and gut-wrenching process. You've hinged your life on this relationship, right? You know, Joseph hadn't just bought a ring and he didn't just have an event in his calendar. He'd given the vast majority of his resources to the assumption that they would be together. They were building a life together. Then there are the emotions that go on top of that, right? The betrayal, that aching sense that you've lived in an alternate reality. When you go, so last Thursday, when I was there, you were, I thought you were there, right? When you thought you were loved and appreciated, but you learn I wasn't. This is gut-wrenching stuff. It's different in every case, but it is never good. And people will tell you it might be like, oh, go find love or go find yourself. It'll be better. It never goes well. It never goes smooth. As the years unravel it all, it's always, always like a tearing. Even if it has to happen, it is. It can be near impossible to resist acting out of rage or fear and Joseph has to walk through and into this. And he is mustering all of his faith as he decides, 
not only to get a divorce, but to do it in such a way that he will not subject her to the extent of his anger or what the law opens up to him. Because in their culture, if she had an affair, that's a capital crime. And it's up to him to decide if he wants to press the extent of the law to its furthest possibilities. So he musters up a lot of faith to divorce her quietly. And this would probably entail one of them relocating, probably her. Um, His goal would have probably been to move on, start over to some degree from scratch. But for him, this would be doable. He could still own his house. He could love again. Um, The shame would most likely sit on Mary and her family. Probably her father would give him back his resources that he'd already given to the family. Um, And their family would sit under that weight of shame and he would move on to some degree. He could could do that. It's going to be hard, but he'd, he'd be okay. To come to that place is a relief. It's a hard decision. And he'd made that decision. That's the scriptures show us he was there. Um, he could see probably a light at the end of a long, dark tunnel. Now, note that this short scripture, as is often the case, sums up something that took time and wrestling and was painful. Um, we need to remember that when we read scripture, that scripture is giving us these snapshots, but it's not giving us the whole story. Sometimes you do have to stop and ask, what would that really be like to make any application to your life? Because our lives... You know, we, you could sum up something from 20 years ago in two sentences, but you know that 20 years ago, that was massive, right? So let that sink in, the process he'd been through already. And then imagine this again, what comes next. I'm going to read it from the beginning. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, and this is where a new modern novel would have an ellipsis, and you'd turn the page, and there'd be a giant, bold behold, and then it would cliffhang, and you'd have to start a new chapter, right? But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, before we get into some of the details First, just think what this is going to mean. The angel, John has mentioned, probably not the little fat cherub, right? Um, But something, some kind of majestic warrior creature, maybe imaged as a man, but no matter what, um, would have been, this is is an encounter, this is significant, this is probably terrifying, because the angel says, fear not. And this is common in biblical visions, because why? The vision is making you afraid, And by the way, Joseph is already afraid about where his life is headed right now. So he's been afraid, and now the vision is bringing more fear. 
Um, and what else does that mean? So he's afraid. He has to hear fear not. And this, as he's you know, going to have to process this, means he will not be getting this divorce. There is not a light at the end of the tunnel that he imagined. He will not be leaving this chapter behind him. No, he is going to be in it for life if he does this, if he listens to this, right? He will marry a woman who's pregnant in a culture unlike ours. Our culture would say, how sweet of you to step in and raise that child. That's very, very nice. Their culture, not the case, right? This is like, you are going to bear this shame with her. You can tell this story, who will believe it? You have no control, right? In God's law, if you marry somebody who's committed adultery, you commit adultery. Um, the pure love story thing is over for Joseph, right? Adultery as a concept is attached to belonging in the scripture. It's this acknowledgement of the impact of unfaithfulness upon those who are deceived, damaged, and dragged through the mud. So, you know, it's what it, it acknowledges what many people in our day feel wrong about. And that is that there's like a jealousy or anger at the person who ends up with the per person who promised you they'd love you forever. Like, God's law in ancient Israel assigned a guilt to the person that entered in, not just the person who did the act. So Joseph, though he did nothing to deserve this, will be viewed this way. Even if he's convinced by the dream, he will be viewed this way by other people because he does not have control to convince anybody else. He can't give the dream to anybody else he will be perceived as an adulterer with a shameful woman and his story gets blown up and it's his choice. He was a good man doing the right thing, but he's going to lose that status. And God comes to him and the revelation is, I'm doing something incredible here, but you will bear insult upon injury, literally. Now, Campus Crusade for Christ has taught us to tell somebody when they encounter God, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's the first of the four spiritual laws. Um, this feels like God's chosen you and has a terrible plan for your life. Just acknowledging that, right? Doesn't it? Now we have to stop here and acknowledge that we're, we, I am blending the thinking of folks like us with the mind of a Hebrew person thousands of years ago, right? Um, likely he didn't assume the, the same things from God in regard to this life. There's every chance that uh, an ancient Hebrew person would have been more honored to do a difficult task for God than somebody in our culture uh, would be. Uh, we, in our context, often view God's goodness as resulting in our comfort and fulfillment. And Joseph might have you know, had his hangups, especially around bearing shame, but he may have felt honored to do something difficult. I have to acknowledge this. But at the same time, there is no way, even if that's the case, that this is a call that Joseph looks at and goes, awesome, I like it. It's not the case. The shame would have been devastating. They were in a shame and honor culture. That's actually probably the worst, um, the worst impact. So Joseph has likely his one big encounter with God in his entire life. We hear of no other, not like this. And it calls him into a story that he's not predisposed to at all and probably didn't want and probably terrified him. And then Matthew, the biographer, concludes the story. He says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, there's a lot there, right? This means he walked into that hard reality every single step, an awkward wedding, right? Um, the, the shame of people who didn't understand. He walked into it. Now, there are some key things said in the dream that would have helped Joseph understand what was happening here with time. I'd mentioned his pure lineage, and the angel does too. He mentions that he's an ancestor of King David. And uh, Joseph likely would have been hoping that there was a redeemer coming to free his people from oppression and that it was expected even to come from his family. So perhaps he put these things together. Perhaps he did. And that would help, I assume. Um, The angel did say that his son would be named Jesus, which is Greek for something like Joshua, which is a, a strong name of deliverance, that this is a savior who's coming. And he said a savior from sins. And Joseph would have thought of that when he heard savior from sins, he would have thought of the impact of the political tensions they were under and the, the impact of the, the religious tensions they were other, under where they were torn between worshiping the true God and worshiping the Caesars. And he would have thought about all of that. And I'm sure there's a hope in believing his son might help this situation. I'm sure there's a hope. So the dream did align with a certain sense of reality. It it acknowledged his true family history. It spoke to a hope that the Bible had spoken to. Uh, Have you ever had a dream that was sort of real, but too weird or fantastic to make sense? Michaela was just telling me about one last night where she showed up to her class. And how many students are normally in your class? Like five, six? Yeah, but 200 were there, right? So like something's off. Like this dream is a little bit... Um, you know, blown out of proportion, 200 students, ah, like, what do I do? Um, you know, the, those, those kind of dreams happen. Um, I had one once, though, where the person was a real person, and the details of it matched, like, what I knew about that person, and I felt like I was called to action, and when I followed that action in the dream, it's because they were in trouble. That's interesting, like, Some dreams are just kind of blown out of proportion. Like it's our, you know, if you were to take our worries and just put a big magnifying glass on them, our dream is kind of that, right? I worry about, I don't know, there's this bridge in my dreams that I go up and it's too steep and my car falls off backwards. Do you ever have that one? It seems like a few people have had that one. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, there's something I'm afraid of in here, right? Um, And so sometimes, but they're just ridiculous, but sometimes, and I actually think it's, it's important to say this because even though, you know, there's not a whole lot, like in a church like ours, we don't go around expecting everybody to have like really incredible dreams, but, but some of you have, and the Bible is full of them. Um, I think it's important to ask the question, does this, does my dream line up with the character of God and his work in the world? Is it calling me to trust God more deeply? Is it calling me to love others? Is it calling me to offer grace? Is it calling me to worship? Does it call me beyond myself? Um, It'd be good to ask those kind of questions. And Joseph's dream is absolutely doing that. This does not like seem like one of his inventions. It's calling him into trust. It's calling him into what the scriptures have been talking about the whole time. And it's kind of accurately depicting who he is, who his family is. I think it's important to see that. 
But we, um, as we discussed as a team, we reflected on the, on the fact that Joseph is going to walk into the story. Um, his dream, um, you know, probably wasn't his invention. It's a hard calling, um, but he's going to fade into obscurity with time. It doesn't mean he becomes this huge deal, but he, he just is faithful. And aren't we glad he was faithful, right? Like, could God have achieved it some other way? Sure, technically. But he called Joseph to be faithful, and he was. And aren't we glad? So if you're hearing this, you may be internalizing this a bit, and that's, that's good. Um, I'm curious for you just to think quietly um, for a second. How do I relate to this like idea that maybe God calls me into something I don't want to do? Um, and what seems kind of unrelatable, because you're, you're not Joseph, right? That's okay. Some of it might be relatable. Some of it might not be. There's a few applications I'll share that have come up from my experience of when people face disruptive calls. And I I don't think this is exhaustive at all. That's why I want you to continue to think of of your own. But sometimes when we hear disruptive calls, um, we may may just want to like put it off till later and run away for now. I've seen that. I've done that. Um, we may be tempted to become angry at God because we could see how this could be good for God, but not for me. I think that can happen. Um, and then another great temptation, especially of our day, is to think that if this isn't moving in the direction I'd like to see my life going, this might actually be a signal that there is no God. I, th- I see that a lot too. The first one I always connect, like the first time I, I encountered this was actually pre-ministry for me. I took a girl on a date, uh, and she knew I was involved in church, and uh, I remember we were playing pool at the end of the date, and she was like, so how serious are you about this Christianity stuff? And I was like, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, yeah, pretty much this is like what I plan to do the rest of my life, you know? And so, and she actually expressed that she thought it, she thought it was true but she wanted to have her fun. She kind of said, like, I, there's a lot of, lot of life I want to live. I'm not ready for the restrictions. I tried as a, you know, however old I was. I think I was 18 or 19 or whatever. But I tried to explain that, like, oh, I don't think it'll be bad, you know? Like, going to church is super rad. Like, if you think about it, it's like kind of like a club. Like, almost. No, I don't know. I don't know what I said, but it didn't work. She was, uh, she was not sold. Um, the second I've heard more as a pastor, and that's the idea that perhaps God's plan is ultimately good, um, but a sense that if, you know, if it's not making me happy, what's it worth, right? Um, I, to use an example of somebody that's not in any of our circles, uh, Tim Keller has a story from his first church where he was counseling a girl and, and kind of saying, hey, you know, the, uh, the, this is what God says. This is kind of some of what, you know, God's will for your life is. And she just said what most people were, weren't bold enough to say. She looked at him and said, but what good is it if a boy doesn't like me? Right? And I think that's at the core of what a lot of us are wrestling with. Like, what good is this faith if, if I don't get the love I'm looking for in this life? What good is this faith if I don't get the peace I'm looking for in this life? Like, what, what good is it? And I think that's a question that's going on underneath for, for many of us, right? And the third is more common these days than when I first entered into ministry. And that's when something hard happens or something disappoints. Like, so you could imagine things like 
you know, election year's coming, the president you don't like gets elected, is there a God? Can I trust him? Um, or a good person in your life gets very sick, is there a God? Can I trust him? And we can spiral into despair and stop praying or hoping, and we disengage because it feels like God's not coming through for me or anybody the way that, in, you know, in my appraisal should happen. So what does Joseph's encounter mean for people like us when we face these type of things and the multitude of things um, we all face? It means a lot of things, but, but here's one. In this biblical story, the feelings are real. That's what I've been trying. I slowed this thing down, I hope, and tried to get you to imagine the real feelings behind this story because they're there. Um, the feelings are real. They were undoubtedly felt by Joseph, but as is you know, exemplified in how short this story is and how it comes down to us decades later in the Bible, um, history remembers our faithfulness and not usually our feelings. Um, in fact, history is definitely shaped by our faithfulness and not our feelings, except in how they impact our faithfulness. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of these things, especially in our day. And here's why I say that. If, if this church were all Roland and Tomet, um, if it was Roland and Tomet and 75 of their clones, um, I'd probably need to say it differently. I'd probably need to say, like, are you listening to the feeling side of this, right? Um, but in our day, younger generation, our day, I say this because most of you are in your 20s and 30s or early 40s, um, like me, um, we're often governed by our feelings, very much. Um, there are two sides of the coin when it comes to these things. Feelings are legitimate. Feelings are always legitimate. We need to understand, you know, God speaks to Joseph's fear. He does not, like, ignore it. Feelings are legitimate. Um, but we don't have to be ruled by them. Imagine if Joseph had been ruled by his feelings, his fear or the betrayal or whatever, right? What would have happened? Imagine, it would have changed things. It's a different story. Um, I think it's good for us to ask, like, what am I hearing from God in my emotions? How am I experiencing God in my emotions? But then also to ask, God, what do I do? What are you calling me to, despite how I feel? The next piece, kind of to the second um, consideration I brought up, is counting the cost. I actually respect that girl who I went on the date with to some degree, because unlike some people, she did appraise to some degree the, count of the cost of following Jesus. Uh, she looked and said, I think it's going to cost me, and I, I don't really want to do that right now. Many people don't do that. Many people just sign up, right? And then end up taking off later. Jesus compared the situation, you know, years later after Joseph had died to if you bought a corner lot and decided you were going to build a house and you told all your neighbors and you went down and you, you know, got the permit and you had your savings and you started building it and you got about a third of the way in and realized, uh-oh, I don't have the money, Right? that's not going to go well. What are you going to have to do? Like, you're going to have to face your neighbors who are going to look and say, uh, did you not know how much that cost? 
Did you not understand the process? Um, you know, did you not get it? You're going to have to deal with that inwardly where you look and say, wow, I never got to have the thing I was longing for. Uh, it's, it's problematic. And so Jesus says, when you are asking the question of following me, you should count the cost. You should think about what it's going to take and you should really, really appraise that. You should. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Um, in faith, the capability to do it isn't in our hands. Sometimes I think we read that as we, we think the cost is completely on us. We think like, oh, do I have what it takes to build a life of faith and to be faithful to Jesus my entire life? And if one of you out here says, I do, I'm concerned. I would really, we should have some conversations. Because, um, wow, I mean, you should be running this church and a lot more. Um, or not. It's terrifying, right? Um, I think it's actually a little more like what we might deal with as a modern-day person hiring a really great contractor. So you buy your plot of land, and you want to build your house on the corner, and you go get a contractor, and they say, here's how much it's going to cost, and when you give me what you have, I will complete it in X amount of time, and I will do this, I will do this on your behalf, um, and I will be faithful to that. The question is, do you have a good contractor who's appraising the situation correctly and who you can trust? It's similar in faith. When you're putting your faith in God, you're saying you are going to be the one that decides where I move and what I do spiritually. Like for Joseph, you are going to decide what I step into, no matter if it's what I want to step into or not. That's the move of faith. And then the question is, do I trust him even when it looks like it's not going to pan out? Right? Christians trust the builder who can complete what he starts. There even happens to be a scripture about that. He who completed a good work in you, or who started a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. That's the hope that a Christian has. Not just it's on me. And now that leads to the final point about God having a good plan for just himself as opposed to... Uh, you know, the plan that I would like to see for my life. Um, what does Joseph, Joseph's encounter have to say to us? Well, look, it may not have led to the story that Joseph always dreamed of. In fact, I'm sure it did not. I'm quite sure it didn't. We don't know much about his life. We know he dies far before he ever gets to see the evidence that his son became a big deal. So, you know, I said he had his one big encounter with God. I think Mary got to have some more. She got to see Jesus performing the miracles and these things. She, she ended up seeing far more. Joseph didn't. He's, off, he's out of the picture. Um, the coolest thing he got to see was his son, you know, looking really smart at the temple. I think he got to see that. Um, but Joseph dies an obscure man, and that may not have bothered him. But I guarantee his life ended up more complicated than he planned. So the big question behind all this is just, is it worth it? Like I said, is it worth it to follow Jesus if I don't get a boyfriend, right? Is it, was it worth it for Joseph? Is it worth it for us? Well, you know, he and Mary did. They went on to have more kids. You could make the argument. He, maybe he lived a pretty happy life. We don't know how he felt about it all. You know, he raised um, the type of son who was said to have favor with God and man. And of course, some of that had to do with Jesus being Jesus. But Joseph did his part. Um. If you think about it, that's true of everything we do in life. Our families, our jobs, our passions, they're ultimately God's. 
and we're just called to do them, you know, do our part. But consider the big picture that the angel invites Joseph to trust in. He said, your son will save his people, his people. That means his people of all times, all places, and as a whole body, he will save them from their sins. Um, Did Joseph get the life he wanted? Probably not. It's probably a mixed bag. But what did Joseph need the most? What's the biggest aim of a life well-lived? Some would say it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And our sin is getting in the way. Um, Our mistakes, sure, but also our doubts, our inability to see the big picture, the reasons we're afraid, um, the ways our world is broken and full of sickness and death and divorce stories and adultery and jobs that serve broken and oppressive systems, the whole big mess. And think about this crazy promise of scripture. Um, John alluded to this with the kids, that there's a resurrection ahead for all people, that all things become new, that all peoples from all of the cultures of the world are gathered together in a renewed creation. That Joseph, the carpenter in a broken world who likely had to lend his skills to the Romans, right? The man who worked so hard to build a home for his wife only to feel like his whole life was falling apart will one day be raised from the dead in a new earth and walk through a small town and recognize a windowsill that he had planed smooth for the Romans just the way he would have done it. Perhaps a piece of furniture in front of a door that It was just like the one he'd wished he had time to make, but he never did. Greeted by a son, his son, who bears the wounds of being crucified on a Roman cross, perhaps like the one the two of them had built. You think about that? They worked for the Romans. And to be overcome by a sense of wonder that he was in the realm of the eternal and a sense of unworthiness to be there starts to wash over him. And um, Jesus, who he taught to walk, probably wrestled with in the backyard, looks him in the eye and says, Dad, it is finished. And I forgive you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now that encounter with God is greater than the first. We think a dream is cool. The encounter to come will be greater than the first. If the promises all come true in our lifetime, then sure, you know, maybe it's not worth it. There's plenty of tragic stories that prove that life can be far too short and far too unfulfilling. But that's never been the hope of God's story. The hope is in God's renewal of all things. Interestingly, interestingly, in the older Advent traditions, the Christmas time portion of Advent, Advent is a declaration of the coming new creation, of the end. The beginning speaks to the end. And that hope can give us the depth of faith that can lead us to do hard and costly things now and to believe that even if we can't see it, even if our lifetime doesn't manifest it, that God will use our everyday faithfulness 
and history will be impacted because God is the builder and God has more in store. He's saving us not only from Rome or Republicans or Democrats or nuclear weapons or climate change or inflation or social media, which all are terrible, but from all of our sins that are impacting the entire creation. Become, because he, he's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found which is what instills joy into the world. Do you recognize the carol? The call of God is often disruptive, but what if it's a call into more grace and a better good than we're capable of imagining? That's what the story of Joseph invites us to consider. The second encounter will be greater than the first. And that hope drives us to the table. Jesus had a harder call ahead of him than Joseph did, right? Um, Joseph did woodwork for the Romans. Jesus was to die on a Roman cross. But by his perfect faithfulness, he grants to us what we could never accomplish in this life. And he secures for us a promise that goes beyond our wildest dreams. He dies on Roman woodwork, raises to signal the new creation is true and coming soon. Um, And a day is coming when we will be known more than we ever could have dreamed or hoped for. Our invitation this evening is to the table where Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is what he offered to Joseph, his earthly father. This is what he offers to all of his people from creation until the end of time. Your invitation this evening is to come and receive Jesus by faith and just to exercise that bit of faith that says, I will trust that you are doing more than I can imagine. I will trust that the second encounter is greater than any of the ones I've ever had. Um, It's to take his body as a declaration that the sins that you've committed have been paid for and the sins that have impacted you don't have the last word. And then the wine at the table is such an, an incredible symbol in scripture. So sometimes the wine symbolizes the wrath of God, that God treads the wine press of his wrath. But then that is renewed because in the restored creation, and even when Jesus sits sits with his disciples, he says, the next time I drink this with you, the next time I drink this with you, it's going to be when we're together in eternity. Um, it's, It's like a wedding feast to come. It's a foretaste. Um, of what's, what's coming when we see Jesus face to face and are known deeply. So the invitation um, is to come and feast on him by faith uh, and to anchor your souls in the promise of new life. So we're going to do a few things now. We're going to uh, take some silent time to pray, first of all. Um, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together. After that, you'll notice that some of us speak, during the first song will begin to stand up and move forward here to take the Lord's Supper. You don't have to do that, um, but the invitation is from Jesus. And it's really just to say, if you can, if you can lean into this hope by faith, um, you're welcome. That's all it takes. If you could just lean into it, just try to trust that he's a better builder than you, that he can do the work. Uh, we're going to sing together, and that singing is meant to take some of these deep eternal truths and just like sink them deep into our souls. 
Uh, and then we're going to do the practice of giving, which is where we say everything in our life, including the very funding that we use to, uh, you know, to sustain us day, day by day is coming from God. It's his gift to us. And so we are just reinvesting it in this good news, this hope um, that other people would be able to hear it and see it through the work of the church. So um, as we enter into this time of prayer, here's what I hope that you would do. If anything, um, if anything this evening has prompted your spirit, whether it unsettled you or if it um, gave you a glimmer of hope or if, it, um, if it's leaving a big question in your mind, here's two minutes to speak to the God who knows you better than any, anyone in this room ever could. Um, and just to uh, confess it to him. And in fact, um, confession can look like asking for help. It can look like just being quiet and saying, I don't know what to say. And it can look like saying, you are God and I am not. All of that falls under confession. So I'm gonna pray for us and leave uh, two minutes for you to pray in silence. Father, Thank you for gathering us here um, under this incredible story of your encounter with Joseph and ultimately of your faithfulness to all of us who are like him, who are trying to build um, decent lives, who are just trying to, trying to be, be decent people and you know, live life in this world. And then um, we have to grapple with your call on our lives, uh, with what it means in all its variety. I think of the two disciples that stood before you after your resurrection, and one learned he would die um, because of his following you, and the other one, um, you know, you didn't really give an answer. You said, if he lives forever, what's it to you? And um, you call us all to these different stories, but ultimately, you're calling us to yourself. And as we grapple with the stories you've given us, I pray that you would give us a deep sense that you are with us. Um, that as the 23rd Psalm says, your rod and your staff would comfort us and that we would know your presence no matter what our story is. So lead us now as we pray.